This is the second parable we're looking at in our series. So we just started last week, uh, Parables of Jesus. Really want to take just a brief moment to encourage you to keep coming out on Sundays as we go through this series. I think there's so much uh, that Jesus teaches us and reminds us uh, of the truth through his parables. When I was younger, we, our family moved uh, a few times, not as much as, as some people, but we did move around a little bit. And um, you know, every time we moved, one of my father's favorite things to do was to kind of reclaim uh, the backyard. And, and often he did it by planting fruit trees and all kinds of trees. And uh, it would be fun for him and work for his kids, right? It, we were, we're dying because he always wants to plant something. And, and I, it, whenever I came home and saw another tree that he purchased, I'm like, oh, man, that means, you know, eventually we're going to have to plant this. Um, and through the course of that childhood, we, you know, we had experienced different types of soil. We had experienced never, though, a place that was easy to plant, but rocky grounds. And I remember one, uh, one house where the backyard felt like we were just put on a big boulder. And anytime we wanted to plant anything, it was so much work getting all the rocks and boulders out of the ground and, and kind of buying you know, good soil for the trees and redoing uh, that. And so I stand before you today as, a, uh, as an expert uh, on, on soils. Right? And so I have a lot of intimate knowledge of what Jesus was talking about here. It's a, it's a joke. Right? You know, we're not farmers. Most of us, if, we, if, if we're living in Orange County, California, we're not farmers. Any experience we have or knowledge we have of the soils uh, that are being referenced in this parable is maybe through a little bit of gardening, flowers, or maybe we want to grow a few vegetables or things like that. Um, but the beauty of this parable, it's, it's one of the few parables that Jesus takes time to really clearly explain. And this is great for us. You have this simple story of a sower going out, and he experiences different types of soil. And the, 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 the whole point of the story is not about the sower. The sower is, in fact, only mentioned once. And so more and more, uh, you'll, you'll see people moving away from calling this the parable of the sower, which was probably a more common uh, uh, name for this parable, and, and calling it the parable of the soils, because clearly, as Jesus explains the spiritual meaning behind what he was telling his disciples and this great crowd that was gathered there, it really is about the soil, the response of the soil to the seed. And as you uh, hear the explanation of his, it's clear that he's not just talking about soil, he's talking about something deeper than that, because he says very clearly, the seed that gets thrown out onto the different places is the word of God. It's the gospel. It's the message. It's the word of his kingdom. And the soils, the four different places where the, the word of God goes to, is, uh, it's a metaphor for our hearts. And there's four different types of hearts that Jesus describes. The first he describes is a heart that is really hard. It's, it's, it's a hardened heart. Some of the seeds as the sower went out to sow his seed, verse 5, falls along the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. 
So you have this picture. I could almost hear it in my, you know, you're, you're hearing Jesus tell this story, and I could almost hear the sound of seeds hitting a path that had been hardened after years and scores and generations of people walking on that path, of animals walking on that path, of things getting dragged along that path, and over time of rain, of water, then trampling, and then rain, and trampling, and trampling, and more trampling, and dust, and more trampling, you had a path that was so hard you could almost hear the, the seeds bouncing on the ground as the sower throws it. And it has no chance to do anything except bounce, scatter, stop, and find a little bit of a resting spot until either someone steps on it or the bird comes and devours it. And Jesus says in his description of this that Verse, in verse 12, the, the ones along the path are those who have heard the word, but then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And you think about this. We know what makes a path hard, but think about this. What makes the heart hard? What makes the human heart so hard that it would resist the gospel, that it would resist being moved or challenged or transformed by the word of God. At least in scripture, it seems to uh, teach us that what hardens the human's heart, uh, our hearts, is sin. You know, if you think about this whole thing, the, 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 the parable of the kingdom and the coming of, of the kingdom, right? Even Jesus himself in verse 10 says, look, here's the secrets of the kingdom of God that we're going to, it's, it's getting revealed to you through these parables, right? Of the kingdom of God. But you think about that, kingdom. Some people got confused and thought Jesus was talking about a physical, geographical kingdom, a new land, a new, a new territory, a new nation. We would have borders, we would have, uh, you know, a place of our own. But what does kingdom imply? Well, kingdom says that there's going to be a king. There's going to be a throne. There's going to be a ruler. And this was precisely, exactly what people did not want. They didn't want a king. They didn't want another ruler, another person telling them how to live their lives. Think about when Adam and Eve themselves rebelled against God. It was such a simple uh, Expectation and command and standard that God had set for Adam and Eve not to eat of a certain, uh, the fruit of a certain tree. And the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and says, hey, is that what God really said? Did God really say that? And the response was good. Yeah, God did say that. And the serpent's response to that was, do you think God's really going to punish you if you ate the fruit of that tree. Is that what God does? Gives you death for disobeying him. And it sounds like such a reasonable statement. But you see, the, the dark evil behind what the serpent said there is the temptation for men 
to decide on their own, on their own merit, based on our own limited understanding of the world, our own limited understanding of creation, our own limited understanding of what is good and evil. The temptation is for us to be the judges, the deciders of what is truly good and what is right and what is wrong. And so that temptation of the serpent was, no, of course, it would not be right for God to say, you eat of that fruit of that tree and you're going to die. You're going to get kicked out. You're going to get abandoned. That's not fair. That's not just. That's not good. That's not godlike. And that temptation is not to have a king, but to be your own king. And that was the problem that faced Israelites throughout the Old Testament times and narratives and scriptures. It was the very same temptation that faced the people that Jesus was coming to and speaking to and trying to teach about the parable of the kingdom. And it's the same temptation that faces us today, whether we are inside the church or outside the church. We all want to decide. We want that power and that ability to decide for ourselves what should be right and what should be wrong, what is good and what is evil. Instead of accepting the king. You see though, the problem of this sin over time is that every single time we tell ourselves we're the king, we're the ones who matter, we're the ones who gets to decide, we're the ones who gets to make these kinds of decisions, every time we do that, you know what we're doing? Our heart is getting harder and harder and harder. It may seem crazy the first time we do something like this. It may seem bold the first time we commit a certain sin, but the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, tenth, hundredth time, there's such a hardening of our hearts that we barely care. Where my parents are currently living, their soil is, has the consistency of sand. And my father asked me to help him kind of pave a little walkway on the side of their house. I, I, you know, I, this is totally a side story. If, if someone ever asks you to do that, just hire someone. It's a very difficult thing. I didn't know what I was doing. Went online, went on YouTube, got all the steps and necessary info, went to Home Depot, and I tried to do it myself. And I get to, get to you know, the side of the, the house, and I put these paving stones down, and they just completely start sinking into the soil, and nothing is even. And so I had to go back to Home Depot, and I bought, I, I didn't even know what this was for, but it's a big wooden stick with a big flat metal base. And I was like, this will do the trick. I went back to my dad's house, and I just started pounding on the soil with that thing. And the soil just started dropping and dropping over a foot. I had to go back to other parts of the backyard, and I filled buckets with soil. I would bring it, pour it down, and start pounding on it. And then I'd have to go. It, it was all day. I was getting more soil and pounding it down, getting more soil, pounding You know what I ended up with? An extremely hard ground surface to put the paving stones on. It's interesting. I've never done anything like that in my life. But this is the exact same thing that happens to our hearts as we sin over and over and over again. It's that constant pounding upon our consciousness, upon our hearts, upon our minds that flattens and flattens and flattens and it makes it seem like our rebellion is so inconsequential. We hardly think about it at all after a certain point. The first type of soil represents the person whose heart is so hard that the gospel never even takes root. 
The second type of soil is the soil that is described in a way maybe as rocky, right? Verse six, some fell on the rock and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. The picture and the idea of it is that there, there's this ground that ha- maybe has a shallow surface or maybe there's enough space in between the rocks where there's some soil and the seed actually has a chance to take root, but the roots have no opportunity to go deep. And so as quickly as it springs up into a plant, when the sun comes out, it withers away because the the roots can't gather up any moisture. There's no depth to it. It's very, very shallow. And so maybe one way for us to think about it is this shallow heart. What's interesting is that Matthew, in his version, and we find it in Matthew 13, 20, uh, chapter 13, in his retelling of this very exact same parable, he gives us one extra detail, one extra detail when he talks about this rocky rocky ground, uh, the metaphor for this shallow heart. Look at it in verse 21 with me. All right, it's the same thing. You You have someone who hears the word, responds with joy. There's a quick springing up of this plant, yet he has no root. And so he endures for a while. But what happens when tribulation comes? What happens when persecution arises on account of the word? Immediately, he falls away. When my daughter was in eighth grade, and she was in, 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 you know, in, in our district, um, she goes to school, and then after eighth grade, you go to high school. Well, well, in eighth grade, she wanted to do something for her extracurricular and her sport, and it was called Color Guard. Anyone here know Color Guard? No one? Oh, oh two, 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 two. You know what? When she came home and told me she wanted to do Color Guard, I had no idea what that was. I, really, I didn't even know how to Google Color Guard. Um, it, you know, one day she came home, she had all these big poles with flags on them, and she had these, this, this wooden rifle that was pretty heavy, and I was like, what, what is this, right? Is this, is this really a sport? Um, and, you know, every day after school, she would go out behind our garage, and she would start tossing these things into the air, and she would practice catching them. And every day after school, if, if you were at our house you, or in our neighborhood, felt bad for all our neighbors, you would just hear the sound of poles and wooden rifles hitting, hitting the asphalt, you know, and, and I was like, well, I was really curious how, you know, is it like who can throw it the highest, who can, uh, who can do most flips with the flags. And then I went to the first uh, uh, competition for her school. And, you know, my wife was, you know, saying, hey, you got to go to every competition. Um, it's actually a performance. I didn't know that. It's actually a performance. There's a bunch of people on the team, and they all dress up, and there's a song, and there's this... It was actually, I, the first time I saw it, you know, don't laugh, I was actually kind of moved. <laughs> you know, you got 30 girls or however many, they're waving their flags and spinning them and tossing them, and you're sitting in the, the gym and it's all choreographed, and with the crescendo of music, there's some dramatic story, and you're like, wow, that was, that was awesome. I, I really like this color guard, and I kept thinking, well, I can't wait to see what they have ready for the next tournament. And the next tournament, it was the exact same performance. <laughs> and the next tournament, the exact same performance. Literally, they perform one thing every single tournament, and they only make minor adjustments to it. 
And so for a whole, year, whole uh, season, I was like, oh, there's another tournament. <laughs> I've already taped it like five times. <laughs> um, but you know, you, you go, and uh, out of pure selfishness, out of pure selfishness, at the end of eighth grade, I remember sitting my daughter down, and I said, hey, let's try a different sport. <laughs> And uh, I took her to uh, her, her new high school. They had this day set up where all the coaches come out and they introduce their programs and you can talk to them and ask them any questions. It was awesome, I loved that, that night. And so I dragged my daughter to that and you know, every booth I took her to, every coach I took her to, I, I fell in love with the program. I wanted to sign her up for it, but as we're walking away, I'd be like, what'd you think, Sophia? She's like, no, not for me. So we're walking away from the cross-country booth. Hey, what'd you think? No, not for me. Why not? I don't, I don't want to run. <laughs> That's going to be hard to do cross-country then. <laughs> cross-country is a sport about running long distances. And so practice is going to be about running. OK, all right, let's, let's try another thing. I, I didn't take her to the golf booth first on purpose. That was sort of secretly my hope and dream that she would embrace golf, because they, pr they practice at a local country club, and I just wanted to be there every day. <laughs> she rejected that because the thought of learning how to hit a ball into the air was, was too intimidating. She didn't want to learn that, and she just was like, ah, your hands hurt, you know, whatever. Took her to swimming. She didn't want to do swimming because she didn't want to get into the pool when it's cold. And I remember thinking, man, I have raised a completely incompetent person. <laughs> By the way, please do not discuss this with my daughter. It's like she can't, she doesn't want to do any of these great sports, any of these great activities, because each and every single thing that she would maybe be able to do has something a little bit difficult about it. And you know, I can't help but think that this is sometimes the reason why the gospel doesn't take root in more people's lives. There is this amazing message of becoming a part of the household of God, of embrace, uh, not only embracing that uh, eternal inheritance, but of God declaring you to be his child, of being adopted into that household, and all the riches, all the rewards, and all the benefits that come along with that promise, and that joyous message, and this search for life, this search of satisfaction, the search of joy, the search of meaning, the search of purpose, is all answered, all satisfied in this gospel. And the one problem is that along with these incredible benefits, you're asked to do certain things. You're asked to love others. You're asked to love Christ. You're asked to put other people first. You're asked to open up your house. You're asked to serve in the church. You're asked to not love money more than other things. You're asked not to love yourself more than other things. And you start thinking, and, and, and because of some of these hardships, because some of these trials, and because you, as you get to understand scripture a little bit more, we see that the king suffered. If the king suffered, what of the king's followers? The king was persecuted. What of the king's followers? And so sometimes that initial joy withers away just as quickly 
as it sprang up in our hearts. This is the rocky ground. And even for us who are in the church, the scary thing is, is that we love the joy, we love the blessings, we love the great moments. But sometimes, oh man, the trials and the struggles and the hard things and the persecutions causes us to want to turn away. The third soil that Jesus talks about in his parable is, is this ground f- full of thorns, a thorny ground. And the problem with this place is that, uh, you know, he describes it in verse 7 of the seeds falling amongst the thorns, and you see that the plant grows, but just along with, as the plants are growing and as the seed matures and the plant matures, so do the thorns. But the thorns choke the plant. Jesus, in his explanation of this, says that what fell, in verse 14, what fell among, among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. Let me say that again. As they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. For many of us, we get glimpses of this almost on a weekly or regular basis. We hear the word, The word comes into our hearts. We're moved, we're blessed, we're challenged, we're encouraged. We make decisions, we make commitments, we repent, we confess, whatever it is that we do. But sometimes we walk through these two doors. We get into the concourse. And then we walk through the concourse and we walk through a set of automatic doors. And we get now into the parking lot. Then we get to our car and now we get to another set of doors. We ride our cars home, and then now we come through a final set of doors. And by the time we make it into our house, the message is gone. Instead, there are the cares, the riches, and the pleasures of life. And those things begin to choke the gospel out. And the moment seems like such a long time ago when we heard something that challenged us or blessed us. I think Jesus himself gives a great illustration of what kind of life this is. In Luke 18, he describes, uh, uh, or we're, we're, described, uh, we're told by Luke, a situation where a ruler comes to Jesus. And this ruler says to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That question is important because it gives us insight into a couple of really important clues about this story. This ruler was searching for something. He clearly had a position of authority, whether it was one of religious authority or not is debatable, it doesn't matter. But for some reason in his life, he feels like the most important thing is missing. 
He doesn't have the keys to the kingdom of God. He doesn't have eternal life. But he recognizes in this man, Jesus, something about him, whether it's knowledge, whether it's know-how, whether it's a connection, whether it's uh, truth. There is something in Jesus, and he has the answer. He has the keys to the kingdom. And so he comes to Christ, and he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be a part of this kingdom? And Christ's answer was, well, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And I wonder, as as Jesus is responding with this answer, if the ruler was almost like, all right, check, 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 check. I've been doing all of these things, Jesus, since the days of my youth. This is the story of my life. I wasn't raised a heathen. I wasn't raised, you know, in a barn. Of course, of course I've been keeping these commandments. And Jesus says, okay, one thing. One thing, I want you to sell everything that you have and distribute it to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. Now, at a, at a very surface level, you, you may, or, or you know, we could, we could misinterpret this story that Luke tells us. And it's a dangerous misinterpretation. If we say, all right, the key to the kingdom of heaven is selling everything we have, giving it to the poor, that that's the key, then I think we've missed Jesus' whole point here with this ruler. Nowhere in scripture does it say the key to eternal life is selling everything you have. But, but, Christ had just mentioned the commandments of God, the ruler had just claimed that he was keeping those commandments, and Jesus was exposing to him that he hadn't kept them at all. All along, from the very beginning, when Jesus first gave his original thesis on his kingdom, with the Sermon on the Mount, he had explained very clearly that it wasn't simply about the external observance of laws. It wasn't just about on the outside that you weren't murdering anyone. It wasn't just about on the outside that you weren't stealing from someone. It wasn't just about that on the outside you weren't committing adultery. He said, what was going on in your heart and in your mind? Because even if you were committing adultery and murder in your heart, you're guilty of breaking that commandment. And when he tells him, hey, one thing you have to do is put me first, leave this life that you have behind, and follow me. Don't consider any of these things greater than me. Don't hold on to these things and lose me. When Jesus told that ruler that what happened, he was extremely sad because he was extremely wealthy. This was a real example of someone who had something in his heart. There was real truth, I think, in a way that was planted in there, and he hungered and desired something, but his problem was what? The thorns and the weeds came and grew and grew and grew and choked out the truth. Maybe it was a gradual process, kind of like the weeds that we see here, or maybe it happened quickly. And then finally, Jesus talks about the good heart, the good soil, the soil that hears the word, that receives the word, and goes and bears fruit. 
I think that concept of bearing fruit is obeying it and obeying it to the point that there is real transformation in your life and that transformation becomes evident, it becomes visible, and there's things that happen in your life as a result of that. And of course, this is the soil that we all desire. But today, if you're like me, sometimes our hearts just doesn't feel like the good soil, right? Maybe we haven't rejected Christ, but sometimes our heart seems so hard. Things just bounce off of it like nothing. Another sermon, another Bible study, another retreat, another mission trip, another fill in the blank, and it just bounces off. Been there, done that already hardened, stamped down into an iron-plated heart. Sometimes we feel so shallow and superficial. We obey for just a moment. We have these fleeting moments of pure joy with Christ. But when things get hard, we want to run. Sometimes we feel like we're getting choked out by all of the cares and concerns and goals and plans and hopes and pleasures of this life. So what do we do? I just want to close with this reminder that we have a divine gardener who's made it his mission to transform our hearts, to make our hearts of stone soft again, to sprinkle water, to give us a new heart, to remove the weeds, to remove the sins, to remove the struggles, to remove all of these things, to give us depth that we could carry on no matter what happens in our life. And that this divine gardener says in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 7, that he will sprinkle clean water on us, that he will cleanse us from our uncleanliness, that he will cleanse us from all of our idols, In fact, he will give us a new heart, a new spirit. He will remove our hearts of stone. That this is the amazing gospel of our God. And so the solution and the answer to hard hearts, to shallow hearts, to choked out or strangled hearts, is to turn to Christ. Give the gardener more time. Give him more opportunities. Increase those times that you spend with him. Grow those times. Come to the Bible studies. Come to church. Spend time at home. Sing your songs of worship. Pray to him and let the gardener work more and more in your heart. He is the one who transforms us. Amen? I'm not saying we're not doing anything in this. Of course not. There is the effort that we put in to connect to our Lord and Savior. But he has promised to make our hearts soft. He has promised to make our lives fruitful. Let's come back. Let's connect. Let's really focus our hearts on his word, his gospel, his life, his promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for just a reminder through this parable It seems so simple, and yet this parable has so much depth. It it reminds us of sometimes how our hearts can be, of how we can reject your truth and your word, of how we can even hear it sometimes and not actually live it out faithfully day by day.
And so we come to you and we ask for your help that day after day, week after week, you would transform our hearts, you would make it soft, you would make it new, you would plant your word in us, that you would cause us to live for you, that you would cause us to obey, and that you would bear fruit in our lives, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.